Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Hi, everyone. Oh, yep, we are live. Welcome to our uh, second in our Sivan series on uh, before, during, and after. Last week, we discussed pregnancy loss with Mrs. Chami Friedman of a time. And today, we are beginning uh, a two-part series with Rifki Biarski, RN, and Mushki Kolarski, both uh, wonderful certified college teachers in Kern Heights that are going to share with us how to navigate the special time of pregnancy and childbirth, touching on so many topics, uh, hashkafa, halacha, medical, practical, the whole gamut. So um, really excited and we don't want to waste any more time here, but I want to just quickly point out that if you're watching this on Facebook, you'll see comments underneath and you're welcome to ask questions there. If you're watching this within YouTube, there's a comment section and you're welcome to comment there. If you're watching this off of our website and you or you don't see the comment box, um, you're welcome to message me at 732-534-2948 and I will make sure the presenters get your questions. And um, also follow us on Instagram my, at mymikvah, Facebook, mikvah.org, or again, message me to be added to the WhatsApp broadcast. That's 732-534-2948. So you don't miss out about any special event coming up. So without any further ado, I'm going to welcome Mushki and Rifki to the screen. Hi. Hi. And hello. Hi. Okay. So um, we're going to actually start with a very short uh, Revit video clip. So I'm just going to put that up in a second. And then we will start from there. He gave them an eternal command. The gift of a parent's responsibility. The game of both of us, food, but we didn't begin out of it. I can go on the kind of advice, and we were so sure to do a bit of the kind of food. Okay, I don't think that the video works. I'm going to try one more time. Um, if not, we're going to just go ahead and start the class. Okay. 
Adam and Eve, he gave, gave them an eternal commandment. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. The task seems simple enough, but it's only the beginning of a parent's responsibility. Der Gegel hat Bloche das Schuss, wo der Ewigkeit gegeben Eltern, als sie sollen können, mit keinem sein sein Schlichus, in Niedles Ordes wie Kischur, durch Druva Sevel mit keinem sein Plur, wo Beruchnis, aber der Richter ist, mit keinem sein Begaschmis Kipschuto, und die Deine Wurzeln sein mit der Hitze mit der Parnasse der Hülle. Ich bin mit über Kammer Pommes. Als ein Befehl wie der Ewigster will, ist bei jedem Haschischi, wo der Mutter gegeben geworden ist, der Zivoi, und Prur, Wu, Milas, Horz, Wikipschur, sorgt die Gemorde in Teras Emes und Teras Chaim, Jeroba Chaim, Was alles in Puri hat, ist Atero in Nitzchis, als ein Hero, wo der Vater der erste Mensch oder Marischen beschaffen geworden ist, Chidi. Aber soll der Fund ablernen, als jeder Mensch ist ein Leila Mole. Wir können darüber kommen, nicht stammt in dieser Welt, nur dass ein Leila Mole eine volle Welt ist. Kein Ninja, was soll dort fällen. Der Rebischer hat gewollt, man soll machen, nicht ein Kehle bei der Kateva. Und der Rache, weil die Kirche bekommen hat, der Tasse, sagt er, dass er ist, als sie wird geboren, ein Kind wird mit dem geboren sein, Parnassen. Und noch mehr, er hat den Mäßig von der Parnasse von der Bneibais, von der ganzen Huis. Sie darf da noch sagen. Okay. So, we just watched a small clip of the Rebbe speaking about Puravu. We know how important it is to all of us, otherwise we wouldn't be tuning into this class or preparing this class. Um, children, our families, um, but today we're going to really be talking more about us, the women, the women who are going through the process of having the baby or having the babies. So we're going to be talking, we're going to be starting off the class speaking about preconception, preconception care, hashkafa. Um, throughout the class, we're going to um, focus on four uh, portions of each subtopic. We're going to uh, focus on halacha. 
We're going to focus on the medical aspect of things. We're going to focus on hashkafa and minhagim. So we hope to give you a very well-rounded um, synopsis of each part of this. So what we're going to hopefully cover today is preconception, meaning before you have your baby, before you get pregnant, um, and then your three trimesters, which your first, second, and third trimester. Um, so I'm going to let Mushki start off and take the floor. Okay, thanks, Rifki, and thanks for playing the clip. Um, so it was, um, I think when you see the Rebbe's perspective, it really says it all. Um, and if you have been to any of my Hashkafa classes before, I apologize. You probably heard this every single time, but um, I think it's important to, um, at least for me, this perspective. And that is, um, I don't know how many of you grew up with the video, I am a chassid, but when I was a kid, I watched it and we enjoyed it. And now listening to my kids watch it, there's this one song that, that they have that really always stands out to me. And that uh, it goes through the life of a yid. And it says, Negelvasser by our bed, and with the way we say Maida'ani, and how we say Harini, and it goes through the daily life, and it goes through every yantif, how as Hasidim, we do it differently. We're proud Hasidim. We take the regular mitzvahs, the regular anhagas of Jewish life, and there's something special on it. And the same thing applies to every single part of the life cycle. Our weddings are different. Our every single simcha or occasion, we always start off with a letter from the Rebbe. Everything in our life has a Hasidisha perspective, and that's hopefully what I plan to share on this particular aspect. Rifki has um, uh, all the medical expertise to share with you, so I'm really going to focus more on the Hashkafa and some of the more practical stuff. And that is, like the Rebbe said, Pruravu is really an incredible mitzvah and schus, that every single child born into the world is like an entire world, and we get that opportunity to do that. And it's something special. And it's not just like all the minhagim and halachas that exist in Yiddishkeit, but we also have special hanhagas. So to start off, this is something that's possibly um, more of a hergish, but it's something that a lot of chassidim do. And I think is a really um, beautiful way of looking at this beautiful mitzvah. And that is before you have a child, before you become pregnant. So could that mean for a newlywed before you get married, possibly, or just something in general, another time you're writing before Rosh Hashanah, before your birthday, to ask the rabbi for a bracha for a child. And, you know, for some people that might um, seem like not necessarily something that's on their mind to ask for a bracha for, but when we ask for a bracha, then we're sure that the child that Hashem benches us with is through the bracha of the rabbi and everything that that um, includes. And that's really something that we all want. We all want to have um, the Rebbe in our lives and to be giving us this bracha for our child. So to write into the Rebbe. Um, also, just the, the, um, the background behind when the neshama comes into the world. From that going to the mikvah, we have so many um, hanhagais that we make sure to touch a, a Jewish person right away. Usually the mikvah attendant will touch you to look at something holy, to stay focused at the time when the neshama is coming into the world on positivity and the ruchnias, and to make sure we know from Perak Beis and Tanya that the neshama is coming down. Hashem chooses the neshama, but the parents are responsible for the levushe neshama. And that's something that we get that special part in to be able to do. And 
Rifki is going to be telling you on the medical side all the things that you're doing on a practical basis before even becoming pregnant. And on a Ruchnius thing, the same thing happens, um, the same thing applies as well. So just like for, you know, you're watching what you eat because you're not, not supposed to, let's say, be drinking alcohol when you're pregnant, the same thing applies in a in our Yiddish way. And that is that we're careful with what we take in, what we see, everything that we see affects the child. What we're eating, our kashras, there are so many sources saying that that a pregnant woman should be more careful with her kashras. So of course, if you're planning for this to happen, not planning, not that we could really plan, Hashem decides, but it's, um, it's something that we can take on and be more careful in. In general, the three mitzvahs of a woman are all, it's, it says in many places that the reward for being careful in those mitzvahs is that Hashem benches you with good children. So that is Chala and, and the mitzvah of Kashras that's connected it, Hadlakais Neirais and Shabbos that's connected with it, and Nida and Tarsim Shpacha. So being careful in those three mitzvahs is something that we do to create the Kali, not just the Kali, but to create the, um, to have the best Ruchnius background preconception that we possibly can have for our child. I just want to um, put in a little disclaimer that I'm not saying any of these things are um, the way you're supposed to do it. And if not, it's the opposite. Um, these are only anything that I'm telling you is just to improve and to have benefit and not to think, well, I didn't do it with my last kids or there's an issue or there's a problem or anything like that. This is just the, Knowledge is power, and the more we know, the more we can do. So I want to empower everyone to take this seriously on a spiritual level and do everything that we can preconception in order to set ourselves up for having the best possible scenario that we can on a Ruchnius level. I'm going to pass it on to Rifki now to get into um, the medical side. Okay. Thank you, Mushki. So Mushki is the word empower. Um, really, that, that's really what tonight is about. It's about empowering you both begashmias, both beruchnias, that you should know that you have choices and what those choices are and what the best choices um, and the most ideal choices and the most helpful resources are for you. So let's go into preconception care. Preconception care is not something we talk about, especially since we don't generally get the opportunity to um, think about it, our first baby. Um, you kind of like get married and you get pregnant and then you're like, do I tell someone? Do I not tell someone? Who do I tell? Where do I tell? Um, how do I find a provider? Like there's so many things that go into like, that are overwhelming when you first get married and first get pregnant that you don't really think about preconception care going forward because you're going right into like first trimester care and prenatal care. So I want to bring to your attention that preconception care is a, it's something that your insurance is going to cover because it's going to help you have the best prenatal um, and, and pregnancy outcomes, which is what the goal is. The goal is to have a healthy mother, a healthy baby, um, and to, you know, have a good experience. So prenatal care is what you're going to do before you get pregnant. Some of the things that we all know is try to take uh, a multivitamin with folic acid um, prior to 
prior to getting pregnant. So how much folic acid do you need prior to getting pregnant? The recommendation, if you never had any neural tube issues before, um, is to have 400 micrograms of folate. You can get that in a variety of ways. You can get that through your food. You can get that through um, having a, a, a folic acid um, supplement. Um, the other things that you want to do is you want to make sure your health is is up to par, that there's no underlying health issues that you have to address, whether it would be something like prediabetes or um, something like a little bit of a high, you know, blood pressure or maybe, you know, optimizing your weight. All these things are going to affect how you're going to react in your um, pregnancy. So we want to make sure that all the underlying health issues are also taken care of pre-pregnancy. Um, two of the vaccines that are very important to make sure before you get pregnant are um, the rubella vaccine, um, and that's a live vaccine. That means that it cannot be given during your pregnancy. Um, it also has very huge implications to a baby, a pastor you do get a rubella while you're pregnant, um, and those are lifelong complications. And we want to make sure that you don't have them. Hep B is also something. So what your doctor would do if you were going to a um, preconception visit would be, and you were already vaccinated, they would check your titers. That means how, how immune are you to these things? Um, so when should you do a preconception visit? When should you start focusing on all of this? The general recommendation is to do it three months before. But the truth is that you can do it at any point in between pregnancies. It's called intraconception care. It doesn't have to do with getting pregnant. It has to do with, am I as healthy as I can be so that I can nurture life in me? Um, some of the things that doctors might offer to you um, that are not evidence-based and that the protocol has changed, I just want to bring it up to you, is it used to be common practice that if you have um, pregnancy loss that doctors would put you on aspirin prophylactically that means just you know to prevent pregnancy loss that's not evidence-based anymore and that's not something um, that you should be doing um, and when I tell you you shouldn't be doing that what I'm saying is have a discussion with your provider do research check into your options and advocate to yourself. Like Mushki said before, it's about empowerment. So I want to empower you with your, the knowledge that I'm giving you. Now, um, a lot of times in a preconception visit, they're going to do genetic testing. Now we've done that. Um, for the most part, we've done our Dori Sharim. Um, and there isn't really a whole lot of additional testing that is recommended unless there's specific family history. Now we're going to go back again to folic acid because I think it's super important. You can take it in a variety of ways. You can take it in a multivitamin, you could take it in your prenatal, or you could take it independently of itself. But I want to make sure that you're taking your folic acid at ideally from three months before the pregnancy. If not, then at least a month before and make sure that you're sticking to it for the first 12 weeks of pregnancy. Why is it so important for clarity in case someone out there doesn't know? It will prevent any, well, most issues with um, the brain and the spine. So it's neural tube defects that it's going to prevent. It prevents up to what seven out of 10. So 70%, that's a pretty large number of preventable neural tube defects. So it's a very small thing with huge implications, which is why everyone speaks about it again and again and again. 
Um, okay, so that's that would be a preconception visit. A, a question many women ask is, how do I know I'm pregnant? So as providers, we're taught that there are two types of, there are three, three ways that we're going to say, okay, maybe she's pregnant. The first one are presumptive signs. That means that we presume you're probably pregnant. So these are the things that we say to ourselves, oh, my, I skipped a period, so I'm probably pregnant. Um, is that, does it mean for sure you're pregnant? No, but that's a likely sign, like maybe you should go buy a pregnancy test. Um, some of the other things that women experience are breast tenderness, any sort of breast change. So that could be um, tingling, changes in shape, changes in color, um, fatigue. Yeah, that's a big one for a lot of women that suddenly they're just exhausted, like beyond every normal exhaustion. Nausea and vomiting, some women that hits them as the first sign and symptom. Um, urinary frequency, that's going to happen because of the hormonal changes, and therefore we may need to go to the bathroom more often. Um, there could be pigmentation changes. So there could be different things in your body that darken. Um, there could be a line on your stomach or different areas in your body that just change. Then there are probable signs. So we say, okay, those we were presumed there's a very high likelihood. Now we're going to talk about probable signs. So probable signs are things that the provider is going to notice. So that's an enlarged abdomen. Like, is your stomach bigger? They can actually palpate your uterus and be able to tell exactly where that is. Um, if, if they're doing a pelvic exam, there are things that change anatomically there as well. Um, and maybe if you're coming much further in the pregnancy, um, then they can actually feel the baby. And this would also, um, want the, uh, obviously the last one would be a positive pregnancy test. So if you have a positive pregnancy test, we're fairly certain you're, pre you're pregnant. How do we know 100% you're pregnant if we hear a baby's heartbeat? Well, there's nothing else that that could be. Um, and if you've done an ultrasound for which we're going to go into, you know, halacha nashkafa of ultrasounds later. But if you're going to do an ultrasound, then that's, you know, yeah, you're pregnant if we see that on an ultrasound. Um, so before we go forward, I actually want to take a big step back. Um, sometimes women um, want to know what their regular cycles are. Ha I'm having trouble getting pregnant. It was not a big deal the first time, but this time something seems off. Am I normal? Is this something I need to go to a doctor for? Um, so I want you to know the general framework of um, what a regular cycle is. So a regular cycle lasts anywhere between 21 and 35 days. That means from period day one to period day one, month one, month two. That means that your entire cycle from period to the following period should be between 21 and 35 days, okay? If you have a much shorter cycle, then um, it's possible that you're falling into a category of what we call halachic infertility, that you're not getting to mikvah at a time where you can be together with your husband when you are tahar. So when, uh, when you are tahar and you are ovulating and able to get pregnant. So that would be an issue that we can address and we can fix and we can help mitigate both on a halachic standpoint and a medical standpoint and help um, bring bridge the gap to a place where you are able to 
get pregnant and have a more regulated cycle. Um, bleeding. Um, a lot of women who have questions about their cycles, they say, well, what's normal? How long is normal? Well, five to seven days is normal. Um, that's the average range. Now, um, a little bit of spotting before, a little bit of spotting afterwards, that's also something that we can work with. Um, there's a beautiful organization, Tarenu, that this is actually exactly what they specialize in. And I think Hasi, um, if Hasi could put that up, that would be a great resource for whoever's watching. Um, and they help with Tahara issues, that if your cycle's not um, where it should be, they can absolutely help um, bring those staining days down. Um, ovulation, ovulation usually happens 14 days before your next period. So the common misconception about ovulation is that it happens on day 14. Well, it would happen on day 14 on a very textbook, perfect 28 day cycle. Um, but for the, the rest of the world who are in textbooks and don't have a 28 day cycle, it would happen 14 days before their next period. Um, now, obviously you're not going to be able to predict your period unless you have a very perfect calendar. Um, and so there are other ways to track your ovulation. Um, one of the ways to track your ovulation is to take your finger and um, insert it vaginally. And if you have um, very thin fluid that's coming out, then that is not ovulation. That's not ovulatory fluid, but if you have very gloopy, mucousy, um, almost like egg yolky um, fluid that when you go like this, it's almost like elastic and it spreads between there, then that would be a sign that you are probably ovulating. Uh, your body temperature changes. Um, that's a whole nother topic for another time that you can track your ovulation that way. Um, and Lastly, I want to talk about how much blood loss we think about a period. Oh my gosh, I bleed so much. It's probably like cups and cups of blood. But really what the normal amount of blood is one to two ounces of blood. So that's fairly small over the span of your entire period. Now, why is it so important for us to know these parameters? Because these are things that will affect you in your conception, they will affect you in your tahara, they will affect you in your day-to-day -day emotional life, and they will affect you in your married life. So we really want to make sure that we address anything outside of these parameters um, because they're usually resolvable issues. Um, I am going to pass the mic back to Mushki to start us on our pregnancy. Okay, thanks. Okay, so Mazel Tov, or maybe not Mazel Tov, Tova, you have the good news that Baruch Hashem, you're expecting. It's a very exciting thing, and many times the first thing that um, pops into your head is... Um, uh, who do I tell or what do I tell? Um, do I, I need a doctor or if it's not your first, then maybe, okay, I have a doctor, um, but who can I tell? Who can I speak to? Maybe for some people who in the past have had difficult pregnancies, there's some anxiety, like oh, what's going to happen over the next nine months. Um, so there's a lot going on. Um, what I'm going to address first is, when do we tell or who do we tell or what's the timeline for telling? So um, 
the due date that you're going to get in your doctor's office or the due date that, you know, you put in online and you get your little due date calculator is the um, technical gestational age. There's also a halachic um, timeline, a different way of measuring time. And that is we count nine months from your mikvanite. So let's say mikvanite was Tesvav Sivan, then um, Tesvav Tamas, you're entering your second month. And then test of of is the third month, test of Elul, you have now completed three months. So when we say, when we say the third month or the fifth month, you don't have to start figuring out how many weeks. And is, is it 16 weeks? Is it 14 weeks? When does the fifth month start? The fifth month starts four months and one day after McFinite. That's the fifth month. So let's go back up to the beginning. Um, there are definitely very strong sources that we don't share the news of pregnancy with anyone until after three months. The exception to that would be parents or anyone that needs to know. For example, a doctor, a doctor you're supposed to tell, you have to tell them. Um, and if you need any kind of support in pregnancy, some women experience all different kinds of things in their pregnancies and they need support and it is not wrong or usser in any way to you know, tell somebody, say, look, I'm, if you don't feel comfortable saying what it is, you could just say I'm going through something, or you can say it's not wrong to say if you're, that you're expecting and it's still too early to say, we're keeping it quiet, but you know, I need some help. Um, what about um, telling your boss? This is already something that's more of personal preference. Some people um, have a harder time keeping things quiet, and if they feel like their boss needs to know because it's affecting their work, then... You know, there's nothing halachically wrong with that, with telling one person at work, your supervisor, your boss, just letting them know, you know, this is what's going on. And that's okay. You don't have to feel guilty about that. But a lot of people prefer not to do it. They prefer to keep their, you know, what's private, private, and I'm not telling my boss before I tell my sister kind of thing. So in that case, it's totally okay. And this is something that I'm going to be saying a lot. And I think Rifki's also going to be saying a lot to feel empowered with yourself that, you know, if you're come to this stage of your life and you're married, and you're Bar Hashem expecting, and you're going to be a mother soon, or, you know, if you're further along in your journey, and, you know, you have kids, you could be empowered to make your own choices and not feel guilty or have to apologize for them. So if you don't want to tell someone what's going on in your life, you don't have to. It's not like, well, I really don't want to say, but they're going to suspect, and they're going to wonder, and then what are they going to think? And, you know, if I'm showing a blade, and they saw me throwing up, what does that mean? It doesn't have to mean anything. This is your life and you, it's okay to keep it private. If you want to tell a boss, that's not wrong. If you, if you need help and you want to reach out, that's okay. Once three months are finished, there are high rise from the rubber that you can tell people close to you, family, people close to you, people care for you. At the fifth month, which is just one month later, because we do after three months and then the fifth month. At the fifth month is already the time when it becomes more public knowledge, and it's not something that necessarily are keeping quiet. Um, this is something that I haven't found a source for, but I think it's something to keep in mind, maybe something that some people are sensitive to, and that is not to chas v'shalom lie about a pregnancy. And, you know, if someone says, oh, you're expecting to say no um, when you are. So maybe a better rule of thumb is just to never answer these questions because it's your life, it's your business. And again, feel empowered to just not answer or to answer however you want and say, 
you know, that's private or wait nine months and you'll find out and you don't have to tell everybody, no, I'm not, or I am, or, you know, feel all uncomfortable because someone's asking. That's their issue that they're asking. It's not your business. Um, so about getting the, oh, about writing to the Rebbe, it's known that um, it's a minhag from the Chassidim of the Alter Rebbe already, that we don't write in, as a rule of thumb, we don't write in about a pri- uh, pregnancy until after the third month. But if there's an issue and you want a bracha from the Rebbe, then there's absolutely nothing wrong writing about it. Again, usually when there's a more complicated situation, you're going to have more people knowing, and that's okay. You're not making an ayin hara about your baby or anything like that. You don't have to worry about that. They're just the standards of how we operate. And in general, we have a concept of privacy, of edelkeit, and of the general idea that things that are special are kept um, more private and more secret. And that's probably, you know, factors a lot into even once it's past the fifth month, we don't generally see, you know, big pregnancy announcements. As cute as they are, it's not really our thing to do that kind of thing. So that's as far as telling people. Um, what about dealing with your doctors? Um, Rifki's going to talk about more about the nuts and bolts of what's going on. When you want to tell them your hashkafa or they tell you that they're doing something, they're doing an internal exam, now they're doing a sonogram now, how do you approach that? Again, remember that you're empowered. You can speak up. You don't just have to, you know, nod your head and just go along with whatever anyone's saying. You can have a conversation. You can express yourself. You can ask questions. You can say, oh, what is this? Why are you doing that? Or oh, that never happened in the past. Or I haven't heard of this. Can you explain it to me? You could say, I want to discuss that with my husband. You can, you can ask the questions. You can find out what's going on. You don't have to be left hanging because the doctor said. You can have your own opinion and that's fine. And of course, we want to have a positive relationship as possible with our provider because they're our medical provider and we want to be able to have an open, um, free relationship with them and not, you know, be butting heads. So when it comes to certain issues, let's say a sonogram, depending where you are, um, this class could be viewed anywhere. So it really depends where you are. Not all doctors are necessarily familiar with, um, you know, from families having a lot of children, they might think it's very high risk and problematic. Why are you having, you know, another baby? You just had a baby last year or you have so many kids. Why do you want another one? Or why do you want to avoid sonograms? Like, it's just helpful. We can see more. Why do you care? Um, and they might not understand as much. And that's okay. And there's, there's a certain amount that you might feel comfortable sharing and explaining. But it's also okay to realize that not every doctor and every experience is going to be the same. And if this is how the doctors are in your place, and that's the standard way of doing things, you don't have to fight tooth and ale because it's wrong. Otherwise you can have a pleasant and cooperative relationship. That really is a factor in a lot of um, hashkafic decisions that you're going to be making. So I want to speak for a second about including the husband because this question came up a few times. How do you keep your husband involved or included? And the real answer to that is that there's no answer. Every single marriage, every single relationship is different and every single husband is different. And what you wanna share is different. Um, But I think the perspective that's important to keep in mind is that this is not just happening to the woman, even though she is the one experiencing the pregnancy on a practical level. This is something that is happening to the couple and to the family. And this is something that involves him. 
some men want to be very involved. Maybe they want to go all, to all the doctor appointments or maybe they don't care to sit in the waiting room for a long time, but they want to hear everything that happened and they have questions that they would like to ask the doctor or they would like for you to ask the doctor because they're curious about. Um, some want to read a lot, some don't. Some want to sit, you know, every week and look at the app and see, oh, the baby's the size of a blueberry now and the size of an orange now. And some are like, why are we comparing this thing to a fruit? Like, let me know when the baby's born, you know. So it depends. And neither one is right or wrong. You do have, I wouldn't say have to, but what you want to prioritize is that this is something that both of you are going through together and that both of you are getting the proper support that you need. That means that he should feel free to express what he's thinking, what he's feeling about the situation so that you could address it or it can be addressed. You should also feel free to express what's going on. Um, let's say now we're living in very interesting times, very different kind of times. And um, the joke is going around in the year 2020. If you don't already have an anxiety disorder, one will be assigned to you. Um, things are going on that are, are different and uncomfortable. and you want to be able to express that. You want to be able to go through this journey together with your spouse. If that's something that you want, if you just want to, you know, discuss with your friends or your sister or your mother or whatever it is, and that's okay for you, that's fine also. But you should have the ability to do this as a partnership. Then also comes along the physical things that you might need support with. Every pregnancy is different. Every woman is different. Some people need a lot more help in the beginning of the pregnancy and they're feeling very sick and, you know, maybe they can't be cooking different kinds of meals. They have to be able to communicate and say, look, you know, I can't stand the smell of this or I can't open the fridge or I need you to, to help me out. We have to figure out something. Or maybe, you know, some people in the end of the pregnancy are really tired or their back hurts and they can't bend over and do certain things. I can't do the grocery shopping right now. It hurts too much to bend down to pick things up from the lower shelves. To be able to have that discussion and to realize that we're in this together and to just be supportive for each other. And... Um, Getting back to some of the more um, technical things. So there's a lot of minhagim or hanhagais during pregnancy that we're going to want to observe. So in no particular order, there's an idea to give tzedaka or even extra tzedaka during pregnancy. The Rebbe says in different places, different things, but to give tzedaka every day, to give extra tzedaka before lichbenshin, specifically to... Um, Rabbi Meir Balines Tztaka, which would be Kailal Chabad, to give Tztaka, um, to check mezuzahs during pregnancy if they weren't already checked that year. Um, there's other, some interesting things. The Rebbe says that you shouldn't exert yourself physically extra more than normal. So if you don't usually run a lot, you shouldn't suddenly start running to take care of yourself. You know, the Rebbe's telling women to take care of yourself and look out for yourself, your physical and mental health. Rebbe addressed mental health a lot with women who have various anxieties or concerns during pregnancy. Um, very interesting to read the answers that the Rebbe gave different people, the spouses, on how to address that. So it's definitely something to you want to take care of yourself. Um, when it comes to sonograms, as a general rule, the Rebbe was against sonograms. The Rebbe had an issue with the routine sonogram be becoming a part of the standard of care. That means that, you know, depending where you are, maybe some people going, in, you know, to doctors in the Lubavitch community won't experience this. Some people, it's just the standard. You come in for your first doctor appointment, you're eight weeks along or whatever you are. 
and there comes the sonogram. And that's just part of how things go. That's not something that the Rebbe was on board with. The Rebbe had issues with sonogram and really was not okay with it unless there was a medical need. What a medical need means different things to different people. Sometimes it, it's an emergent medical need. An accident happened. You fell down a flight of steps and you're bleeding. That's an emergent medical need. That's something they want to check out what's going on. Um, those kind of things are almost a no-brainer. Um, but then there's also other issues that come up that maybe you might say, okay, I'm not sure if I need a sonogram. Maybe I do, maybe I don't, but it actually is a medical need. And in general, throughout pregnancy, throughout everything in your life, you're going to want to have a Rav, a Chassidosh Rav that understands these things that you could be in touch with. And your team, your support team, when you are going through this wonderful journey, is your doctor and your Rav and hopefully your spouse and hopefully you have somebody else for you also. But you have these people that you don't hold back from. You tell them what's going on and you can discuss things. So a sonogram. Sometimes people don't know when exactly they became pregnant. And that can be fine. That can be okay. But you also have to find out what happens if your due date is not accurate. If you're going to end up in the end of pregnancy, running into issues like, oh, no, we have to induce because you're overdue or, you know, they're measuring and the measurements are off. So you're going to end up having tons of sonograms every two weeks to compare measurements. If you're going to end up in such a situation because you don't have a solid due date, then in such cases, the Rebbe was pro having one sonogram in the beginning, when you get that accurate measurement, you get your due date, and you take care of that. That would be a medical need. Um, so it's something that you want to discuss with your Rav and keep an open mind about. Yes, as a general rule, we don't just use sonograms for everything. On the other hand, sometimes there is a need and it might not seem like so obvious. And this is one of the things that you would want to discuss with your doctor. Say, oh, you want to do a sonogram? Why? Explain to me why it's important. Ask those questions and then say, okay, I'm going to make a decision. Speak to your husband, speak to your rub, figure these things out. Speak to your mashbia. So that's as far as sonograms um, for now. I'll get back more into sonograms a little bit later. Um, other minhagim or hanhagis during pregnancy is that if you are expecting, you are not a kvater or interferer. So either at a bris or at a wedding, that's not something we do. Um, interferer at a wedding is possible as long as there's another couple also, but the factor and a bris, you just don't do that. Um, trying to think what else for right now. Um, there's an idea to eat malava malka for the sake of the baby, um, even a little bit, take a bite of malava malka, it's supposed to be beneficial. Nails, we avoid um, anything to do with cut nails. Nails have to be disposed of and we want to avoid nails. The question comes up a lot about um, nail salons. Is it okay to go? Halakhically, it's not um, a problem to go, but what you can do is um, you can ask them to sweep before wherever you're going to be walking, ask them to sweep up. And once the nails are moved, it's not considered such a problem. Um, so to look out for nails fasting when you're pregnant. Summer's coming. We have two fasts coming up. As a general rule, our minug is that for all of the minor fasts, well, they're not really minor, but all the fasts that are not 24 hours, 25 hours, those fasts, we pregnant women and nursing after having a baby, do not fast. You don't have to wait and see if you're feeling sick from the morning, you're allowed to eat. You don't have to indulge more than necessary, but um, 
you don't have um and then there's also the um and you don't have to like give tzedakah instead or for a different day you don't have to do any of that thing if bachlal doesn't apply to you you don't have to fast when it comes to tishabav it's a little bit more complicated it's something you're going to have to speak to a rav it really depends if there's a risk factor for the pregnancy then that plays in um in its own way um okay so I think I'm going to pass it back to Rifki now. She's going to address more of the medical side, and then I'll come back on and discuss some of the things that come up later in pregnancy. Okay, so I'm just unmuting myself. Um, I'm going to actually go back before I go forward and address some of the points that Mushki spoke about. Um, she spoke about you know, you have to have your doctor for the next nine months. Let's be nice to him um, or her. I hope it's not a her who's not being uh, understanding. But I just want to bring across the point that um, any provider who is worth their weight is going to be practicing what is called patient-centered care. That means that they're going to let you advocate and let you be part of a shared decision-making process. That means that nothing is going to be like, this is protocol in my facility that we just do all the ultrasounds. Um, and if you do have a provider who is telling you that you got to do it his way or the highway or her way and the highway and there's nothing else, then that might not be the best fit. Okay. You want to be part of that, of every single decision, whether that's getting a dating ultrasound or whether that's doing testing or whether that's a pap smear, um, you need to, be part of the process and take control of the process in a way that you feel empowered going back to that whole concept again. Um, there's no such a thing as feeling like I have to be nice because otherwise we're butting heads. No, if your provider isn't listening to you, that's not your provider. Okay. They have to respect and honor your wishes through your pregnancy. Remember pregnancy, a normal pregnancy, a regular non high risk pregnancy is not a medical condition and shouldn't be treated as such. And therefore you should be supported in a healthy pregnancy um, and, and supported in your wishes and how you want to go about that, obviously within the parameters of safety. Um, I'm going to go back to another point, not because I have anything to add, but because I want to strengthen what Mushki said. Um, she spoke about sharing with others um, as someone who has had hard pregnancies and has reached out to people way before the five months, wherever those magical five months are. I want to really bring across to you that if you're struggling in any sort of way, emotionally, physically, you can't get out of bed, you're just that tired, um, you're throwing up nonstop, you can't get your kid from kindergarten because it's at three o'clock and you're just like dead at three, then please, please reach out. Even if it's not family members, even if it's your neighbor down the hallway from you, get whatever support that you have. It's not a lack of Siddishkeit. It's not a lack of Frumkeit. It's not a lack of anything else. It is exactly what you need at that time. So I want to empower you to really know that Tyra recognizes that pregnancy can be difficult and that you really should, you know, not be, not, not think that it's the wrong thing to do to share that with someone. Um, someone brought up about what I brought up before, and I always have a long spiel about MTHFR, um, but I wasn't going to really bring it up here just because of our time constraints, but because there is probably a whole bunch of, of people out here listening that it will affect, I'm going to bring it up. Um, 
MTHFR is a gene mutation. That doesn't mean that there's anything wrong. It just means there's a variation of a gene um, that a lot of Ashkenazi um, Jews have. And what it does is it you process different um, nutrients and different supplements differently. For example, one of the things would be folic acid. So for someone who is MTHFR positive, you would have to do you would have to take something called methylfolate. Uh, methylfolate is just a more bioavailable form of folic acid. Now, if you're not sure if you're positive, if you're MTHFR positive or negative, which a lot of people won't know, go ahead and take the methylfolate. There's nothing, no harm that's going to be done from taking the methylfolate. In fact, that I I regularly recommend that everyone takes the methylfolate. Um, the other thing that Mushki brought up is ultrasound. So I wanna just address ultrasounds before I go forward. Um, for years, I always like had an internal struggle when it came to ultrasounds. Like I know what the Rebbe says about ultrasounds, but um, part of me, the medical part of me, um, always said, wait, imaging is best because that's how we practice in the hospital. Imaging is always best. Imaging is what we do if we're not sure what's happening. Imaging tells us definitive facts and we want to have imaging. And for years and years, I like had this little internal struggle. Like I know exactly what the Rebbe says and obviously that's what we do. Um, but there was a little part of me that struggled with myself. And, um, as I went, as I'm going through midwifery school, I actually read up on some studies and I'm just going to share it here that it's not the Rebbe talking about ultrasounds that happened many, many years ago. There are two things that happen with the ultrasound um, when we do do an ultrasound, which would be why we shouldn't be doing an ultrasound just because your provider wants to see your baby every single time. There's something called cavitation which are mechanical vibrations that the baby is going to feel. We don't know how it affects the baby. Um, there's no data that it will affect the baby um, in any sort of harmful way. There isn't any definitive fact that says, no, it doesn't, it doesn't affect the baby at all. So I would proceed with caution and obviously exactly the way the Rebbe said. Um, the other thing that we have noticed that the ultrasound does is it increases tissue temperature under laboratory conditions. So obviously we don't study pregnant women because that would be harmful. Um, there's ethical issues with that, but there is heat that is produced by the ultrasound technology. Um, and how, what implications that has directly, it's not proven to have any harm whatsoever. So I don't want to cause you to say, oh my gosh, I'm doing ultrasound. It's not proven to have any harm, but on the little, little minute chance, I think that the Rebbe was talking about that. The Rebbe was saying, don't have an ultrasound just because um, your provider says, oh, in our office, we do ultrasounds every single visit. Um, so once a month, you're gonna have an ultrasound just because I wanna see the baby and I wanna hear the heartbeat through the baby, through the ultrasound machine. So obviously if you need it, it's there and if, um, If you don't need it, it's better to, you know, move forward. Okay, so let's go right into your initial um, visit to your provider. So, like Mushki said, Bashatova, very exciting. You have a, a, a positive pregnancy test, um, and now you're going into your first prenatal visit. Um, 
there's one point that I want to bring across before we go into the actual visit. Just because you chose a provider on your first visit does not mean you need to stick to that provider for the duration of your pregnancy. If you feel that when you go to that provider that that provider just doesn't see eye to eye, doesn't give you space that you're comfortable, that you feel empowered in, then that might not be the best provider for you. How are you going to know that before you actually choose a provider? Well, there are some questions that are really great to ask. Um, you can ask your provider, um, how often are you going to expect me to come in? What type of visits are you going to have? Um, where am I going to deliver? What is the hospital protocol in the place that I'm going to deliver? That means how can I deliver? Are they going to allow me to eat during pregnancy, during labor? Are they going to allow me to walk around, have monitoring? Do they have a weight restriction? Some hospitals say that over a certain weight, then you have to be strapped in the bed and on the monitor. So you have to ask questions about the labor because during the nine months of your pregnancy, you're going to be establishing relationships with your provider or your group of providers. And you wanna make sure that those relationships end up being you know, in a hospital or a birthing center or a place where you are comfortable giving birth in. Ask how many providers. Are you going to have an option to meet all the providers that might be with you um, when you have your baby? Ask them if there's any postpartum support. Do they offer any other classes or any other um, resources for you? How much autonomy are they going to give you? Are they going to let you make decisions on your pregnancy? Are they going to let you make decisions? I once went to a provider who came extremely highly recommended. And when I asked her this question, she goes, oh, none. You're going to have to tell me when you travel and you're going to have to tell me what you're eating. And I was like, mm -mm, bye, not for me. But these are questions you have to ask. So I don't care how highly recommended and if it works for Shrinza and Yentl and your mother and your cousin, but it may not work for you. So you have to decide that and really, really speak to the, the provider and find out. And this is kind of like, almost like an interview process, but don't be embarrassed. Your business, <laughs> in order for them to keep the doors open, they need to um, cater to you. So they're going to try to work with you and try to make sure that this is the best fit for the two of you together. Um, ask them about their C-section rate. How many of their patients end up in a C-section? Every single provider keeps statistics. They know exactly how much percentage-wise of their patients are ending up in a C-section. Ask them about their episiotomy rate. Um, ask them why. If, if it's very high, ask why is your C-section rate high? Maybe they, they're also catering to a very underserved population that doesn't have access to prenatal care, but they're providing um, deliveries for them. So you have to ask why when you hear numbers that seem um, a little bit different. Ask them about post-dates. What's going to happen when I reach 40 weeks? How much longer are you going to let me um, be pregnant for without pushing for interventions? Ask them if they deliver breech babies. What's their policy on breech babies? What is their policy on labor induction? Are they going to push for induction? When and what point of the pregnant of the labor are they going to say, okay, we need to have an induction? What is their sonogram policy? Like we spoke about, are they very firm on having a 20-week um, anatomy scan? 
um, for you, Hashkafically, how does that fit with your values? Um, ask them about cervical checks. Are they going to be flexible and let you not have cervical checks? Medically, it's not proven that cervical checks are helpful in any way unless maybe they need one baseline cervical check. So these are questions that you would ask your provider before you decided this is the person I'm going to take on. You can ask it in your first prenatal visit if they don't have any um, orientation process or any phone time that you can have before you go in. And then if you see that the, the provider and the answers don't match up with your values and your wants and needs, then you can move on from there and um, look at possibly finding a different provider. In general, what you're going to find with um, midwives versus doctors is that doctors are trained um, to, they're trained as doctors. That means that they're trained when they see an issue, they need to fix it. And that's doctors in general, because that's how they're trained. They're trained through the residency program to see, oh, a, a red eye, then we assume it's conjunctivitis. You see um, yellow skin is jaundice. You see all these things and you automatically associate it with an illness that they need to fix. And therefore, when you go through that process and then you go and have a OBGYN, unless they have actively worked against that thought process, they will usually um, think in that manner that pregnancy is some, a medical condition and you have to deal with that medical condition. Um, the second thing, the second thing um, that I want to bring across to you is that midwives look at pregnancy as a natural physiological um, process and therefore it's more of a supportive role and holding space for the pregnancy to progress than let's do all these interventions. Now, obviously, not everyone's going to be able to access midwifery care. Um, the people that are going to risk out are the people who are going to have medical needs that are going to have to be addressed, and therefore, they're going to risk out of midwifery care. Um, someone just comment, um, and it's a very good comment, so I'm going to bring it up before I go on, is that ask your provider what their policy is if your water breaks before labor begins. That's an absolutely excellent, I'm just gonna write it down. <laughs> um, that's an excellent comment, yes, thank you. Okay, so let's go through what's going to happen in your first, um, in your first appointment. So the first thing that they're gonna do is they're going to um, ask you why you think you're pregnant. Um, when was your last menstrual period? The reason they ask you why your la last menstrual period is because your last menstrual period um, is going to help us give an estimated date of birth. That means that although it's not absolutely perfect, there's something called Nagel's rule. Um, and Nagel's rule basically tells us that you take the first day of your last period minus three months plus seven days and that will give you your estimated date of birth so it's minus three months plus seven days obviously plus a year as well um now that can get adjusted so if you tell your and this is a very important thing because a lot of providers will leave it as that but i want you to know that if you have a, a, a cycle that's anything other than 28 day cycle you should adjust that accordingly so if you know that you usually have you average um like a 32 day cycle 
um, then you should adjust it to your average cycle. Now, what's really cool is that the mikvah.org app um, actually has a place that's going to tell you your average cycle, the average cycle length, and you can use that to show your provider that your average cycle is a little bit longer and that your estimated date of birth should be um, adjusted. Um, they're going, um, ACOG, which is the, um, which is what doctors um, get their guidelines and protocols from, uh, does recommend that you should have a dating ultrasound. And therefore, if you are offered a dating ultrasound, um, you, I want you to know that you absolutely can say no, it, it's not something that I want. Um, and Nagel's rule is proven to be fairly accurate. Now, what is not fairly accurate is you've ever seen those circles that they use and that they just, you know, turn it around and they're like, oh, your last menstrual period and they move it. Those are not accurate. Those are mass produced. They are lots and lots of times not um, in the right places. So if you see your provider doing that, um, double check. Okay, so um, your first once you're, they establish an estimated um, date of birth, they are going to give you a physical exam. Um, they're going to ask you your weight. And the reason they're asking your weight is because um, anyone who has a BMI of less than 20 or a BMI that goes into the obesity range, then they are possibly at higher risk for um, preterm labor and other pregnancy complications. Um, and therefore, all, all that's being done at this point is, be, is checking whether you have a healthy weight range so that we can know if we have to pay attention to more signs and symptoms as you go through your pregnancy. Your blood pressure is going to be taken. Now, blood pressure is something that's going to be taken routinely at every single visit. Um, that's because there's a during pregnancy, there's a risk of something called preeclampsia. Excuse me. Preeclampsia is um, a very, very serious condition where if you have your blood pressure go up too high, um, then it can cause um, coma. It could cause seizures. It can cause a lot of very, very serious issues. And therefore, that's going to absolutely be tracked throughout your pregnancy. Um, some providers will check your breasts and nipples um, that way, uh, but it's it's not something that is um, has the highest level of evidence. So if you're not comfortable, you can definitely opt out of that. Um, some providers are going to say they want to do a pelvic exam. Um, you can op, opt out of a pelvic exam. Um, not all providers are going to be comfortable with that. They want to see. Um, and the reason it, the reason they want to see is because they want to get a baseline. So that if later on in the pregnancy you have an issue, then they know what to compare it to, whether you came into the pregnancy with this issue or whether this is a newly developed issue. Um, now, if you don't feel comfortable with cervical exams, I know a lot of midwives, um, there's a growing movement of midwives who will let, let's say a woman help place the speculum in, uh, which kind of gives you a little bit more of a sense of autonomy um, and let you be a little bit more hands on. And they will say things like, I'm taking my hands and I'm touching your inner thigh. I'm taking my hands. And that way you are more in control of what's happening. You don't feel um, 
like this is like something extremely uncomfortable, kind of like mitigating that factor a little bit. And also it's, it creates a supportive environment in case there's some sort of trauma that the provider doesn't know about. So if you see your provider doing that, they're not, you know, doing something weird, that is um, trauma-informed care. That's something that is supposed to be done for women across the board. Um, then you're gonna have laboratory tests. That means that there's gonna be blood work that they're, that they're gonna take on you. Now, what your provider usually does is go, okay, I'm gonna do your blood work now, and then they just take your blood. Well, ask, what are they doing? If you didn't, if you really don't care, that's fine. But if you do, usually what's done is that at every single pregnancy, whether it was done at a previous pregnancy or not, they're going to check your blood type, and they're going to check if you're RH positive or negative. Um, and that's going to be done every single pregnancy. They're going to also start off your pregnancy with a CBC. Um, what they're doing when they take a CBC is they're checking if you have anemia. Um, and that way we can treat the anemia as early as possible. They're going to recheck that later on as well. Now, um, some women are gonna be offered additional testing, but for our particular demographic, um, usually you're not offered additional testing. Now, HIV testing is going to be offered. It's an opt-out test. You can have it. It's part of the routine panel and it's automatically on there, but you can opt out if you want it. Um, there's a different states. I don't know who's watching and who's not. Um, different states have different protocol on what's included like STD wise. So you might be tested for STDs, which is absolutely it doesn't really make a difference. It doesn't mean anyone thinks that you have any sort of medical issue or any sort of STD. Um, during your first visit, um, ideally, you're going to get dietary counseling. And I will tell you that the providers who do provide dietary counseling in the first visit, um, good for them. That's fabulous. And they absolutely should. Um, I've definitely had a few and I've definitely had a lot more than a few who haven't. Um, but your caloric changes, the calories that you need change in your pregnancy. So in your first trimester, you're gonna need 150 extra calories a day. And as you go through your pregnancy, you're gonna need between 300 and 500 extra calories a day. So that's a significant amount of extra calories. And we wanna make sure that we consume those calories in a healthy way and that we're eating as healthy as possible. One of the other Looks like Rifki froze there for a moment. So I don't know, Mushki, if you want to take over and as soon as she unfreezes, I'll step in. I just feel bad because she was literally mid-sentence. Um, so talking, she's talking about pregnancy first visit. Um, another thing that I wanted to mention, I don't know if she was going to say it or not. Um, it's what happens if in the beginning of pregnancy, there's, you know, some staining. It does happen on occasion. Um, most of the time, the first... Thing that everyone should know was that you know when you're pregnant you're not expecting to see anything so when there's some staining issue it usually um you know can be pretty concerning or off-putting 
but that happens. It happens in about one out of five pregnancies that there is steaming and the vast majority of time, the overwhelming majority of time, I believe it's something like 80% of the time, um, it's absolutely nothing. It continues to go on to be a healthy pregnancy and that's not something that um, usually presents in any way. Um, however, it might have to go on the calendar. Um, we also sometimes women experience a little bit of implantation bleeding around the time when the um, when the embryo implants in the uterine wall. So that's something that you have to um, discuss with your rub regarding keeping the calendar. Because in the beginning of your pregnancy, the first three months of your pregnancy, halakhically, it's like as if life is regular. So you're going to keep, keep um, all the inis that come up on your calendar. If you have a chaydish coming up, a bainanis, you have your haflaga, Usually those things pass before you even took your pregnancy test. But if you still have some longer ones outstanding, you still have to keep them as usual because halakhically, um, it's just like regular. And then if new staining happens, you're going to have to ask your rub what to do about it. Um, does it go on the calendar? How do you keep it? Um, and those kind of things. So that's just something to be aware of. And in general, you should always know that your rub is is your right-hand man. He's, he's there along with the doctor to guide you through anything going on. So it's totally okay to, you know, discuss and find out about these kind of things. You have a good rough who's knowledgeable in this area, then it's not something um, to be concerned about at all. Um, I don't want to stray too far from the medical side because hopefully Ricky's going to get back on soon. Um, continuing on with, um, with sonograms. So I addressed a dating sonogram that sometimes might be necessary or advised based on the circumstances and the fact that um, the Rebbe was, there are answers from the Rebbe about getting a dating sonogram that it's worth it if in the future there's going to be more issues. Like if the baby's not measuring on track because your date is off and then there's going to be more interventions because of that, possibly an earlier induction um, that may even possibly lead to C-section. It's just that cascade of interventions that start happening because you didn't have the accurate information. In such a case, a simple sonogram, they're usually not very long at that stage, um, could be advisable for a person. So you speak to your rough about that. Um, another one that comes up, um, another one that comes up quite a bit is the 20-week scan or the 18-week scan. It's called the anatomy scan. Um, it happens at about five months along. That's definitely something to speak to your Rav about. Um, there's a lot more information that we've been learning over the last five, 10 years that can be seen through the anatomy scan. And in general, the Rav's approach to the sonograms is, is there a medical need? And then what are you gonna do with that information? So if you find out something's going on, what does that help you? First of all, is it accurate? Sometimes, you know, we might see things, there's signs of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything's gonna happen. Um, and then what you can do about it. We have been learning um, that there's more and more things that we can do. Um, first of all, there's in uterine surgery nowadays, which is really cool. And actually, you know, you can save babies' lives, which is really amazing. And then there's also a lot more progress in neonatal surgery. So things that maybe used to be like, oh, sorry, the baby has a defect can now be things that, okay, we'll, we'll prepare and we'll have a team ready and the baby could be taken care of, you know, straight from birth and be protected and be um, because of that. So that's something that um, 
Hasidic Rabbanim are becoming more aware of, as a community we're becoming more aware of. And that is something that um, your provider is probably going to, you know, highly recommend. And you can discuss with your own Rav. So far, to my knowledge, um, I haven't heard of a Rav that is not okay with it when asked, but it's something that you should be asking your own Rav if that's something you do. You don't have to do it. There's nothing that says, well, nowadays we're in the year 2020, everybody has to get an anatomy scan. It's not a rule. You do what you're comfortable with. If you don't feel like there's any risks or there's any need for you to have that information, you don't have to do it. But it would probably fall under the category, again, speak to your of, of something that could be um, beneficial to do. Towards the end of the pregnancy, sometimes there's more needs for um, a rookie's back. Ready? Take over. You were like mid-sentence talking about 150 calories. You can keep you can keep calories. Your I don't know what you're talking about, but it sounds very interesting. You muted yourself. <laughs> that I'm already up to the end of pregnancy, so I'll let you take it back. You're still on the first visit, and I'm up I'm on the first visit. I haven't even finished. Um, just because maybe that was a sign from Hashem or something. Are we up to questions, Kasi? Um, before we have questions, I do have points to make. Are you to questions, or do you have more that you wanted to address? I have, I have a, a little, little bit more to cover. To say, um, but I didn't even finish. Like, I'm in the middle of a prenatal visit. So uh, maybe if we finish that and then go to questions, how does that sound to you? Uh, I just want to cover two more points, but I'll let you finish up, and I'll finish. No, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead Mushki. Okay. Um, they're just unrelated. They're not in the middle of anything. Um, in the end of pregnancy, closer to your due date, there might be questions about sonograms. Again, many times those sonograms are going to enable you to go further past your due date. Like the, your doctor or midwife might be totally okay with you going overdue as long as they know how big the baby is. So they don't have to worry about the baby growing too big or as long as they know the water level is okay. So for that, that's called a biophysical um, sonogram that they usually do. And when they do that, that is enabling you to go a little bit longer and to have less interventions because induction is an intervention that is, you know, halachic shayla, at least a, a shkafa issue. So a lot of times it's beneficial to rather have the sonogram versus say no, absolutely no sonograms. And then you end up, you know, forced to be induced at an arbitrary date for no reason. Um, another thing I just wanted to mention, the minug during pregnancy is not to go into a besakvaris or go to a levaya. The oil might possibly be an exception just because the way it's designed, um, that they have walls up around, so you're not around tuma. Bechlal in pregnancy, we're very careful around tummy things. We don't look at trefa animals. We don't go to zoos. We don't go to, we're not around a dead person, chasashalam. And... We're also careful the kind of images that we take in. The Rebbe says many times, and there's many, many sources for it, that everything affects the baby. So any media, any images that you're seeing, whether it's violent or it has to do with Averis or things like that, you don't want the baby affected by it. Speaking of Averis, it says that any hear her Avera that the mother has also affects the baby, which is why by Kaparis, the baby has to do Kaparis too. So... Um, we do three chickens for Kaparis. I'm only mentioning it because it's like coming up soon in the year. It's in a couple of months from now. We do, um, the mother gets a female chicken and then the, you get uh, one for a boy, one for a girl, just in case. Um, another thing that is uh, about the end of pregnancy is that there is a minhug for the husband to do psicha, 
take the open up the arain, and that's a skula for a easy birth, and also for a woman to bake challah in her ninth month. And in general, be careful with the mitzvahs related to a woman about going to mikvah. Sometimes, like I mentioned earlier, there could be staining during pregnancy. There could be nida reasons that you have to go to the mikvah, and that's okay. It's just like regular mikvah. Um, and sometimes, you know, if it's Erev Yom Kippur, people have a minute to go. That's okay, too. But there's no there's no chafif for anything like that. There's no counting. You just go. Um, some people have a family minhag to go to the mikvah in the ninth month. The Rebbe says that he has not seen a source for it, so therefore it's not a Chabad minhag. But if it's your family minhag, there's nothing wrong with keeping that. So I just wanted to get those few things finished, and I'm ready to go to questions if Ricky wants to finish anything off. Okay. So I'm actually, while you were talking, I was listening, reading the live comments. A lot of the things that people are writing are fabulous and amazing, and thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, it's some of the things we're not going to get into in every single aspect, which is why ultimately this class is an overview. Um, and it's very important that when it comes to your own personal question, you do go to your Rav or Mishpia or medical professional and get a personal answer for you. So there are a lot of things that are really great um, that are being brought up. Um, but ultimately, um, this class is about empowerment. So we empower you to then go to your guided sources um, of knowledge and information, hashkafically, halachically, um, medically, and get that the ultimate, you know, the ultimate answer for you from them. So this isn't like the buck doesn't stop with us. So we're giving you an overview. So while some of these um, points that you're bringing across are certainly very, very valid and certainly wonderful. But in the framework of this class, we're not going to be able to cover everything. And Mushki and I both completely do understand that. Um, I'm just, what I'm going to continue to bring across when it comes to the first prenatal visit are the questions that have been brought to me again and again, either through my students or people who've been referred to me or through, um, people who I've spoken to or questions that have been asked to me in the past. So that's why I'm choosing these specific topics to make sure that I address. And by no means is this a comprehensive class because that would be months of schoolwork <laughs> that I can give you if you'd like, but this isn't it. Okay, so let's talk about weight gain um, for a second because a lot of people are very, very worried about the weight gain that they gain or don't gain during pregnancy. Um, Pregnancy is not a time to lose weight. It's not a time for you to be, you know, watching what you're eating in the sense that, oh, I'm going to, you know, watch my calories and lose weight. But there is a very specific um, target of where we want women to gain weight. And most of the weight is going to be gained in the second and third trimester. Um, for a, someone who's starting at, at a normal BMI, um, that's usually around 25 to 35 pounds. That is very normal. Okay. Um, 35 pounds sounds like a whole lot, but most of it is baby. Uh, most of it is maternal stores of fat that are going to give you energy to um, breastfeed your baby. They're going to give you the the needs that you have and it's going to come off at the right time now if you're starting off at a heavier weight the goal is to be between 15 and 25 pounds now this is the goal it's not you know nothing absolutely terrible is going to happen if you are a little bit above that um, some of the things that are very important to mention is that you're going to be screened 
for intimate partner violence, okay? Um, that's not because, it's not gonna be something that you're going to notice, but if anyone who's listening ever has the need to speak up, your first prenatal visit and any subsequent uh, provider visits is a great time to speak up. It's a great private place um, and your providers are trained in how to deal with intimate partner violence. A lot of times, um, you know, domestic abuse does start during pregnancy. Um, that's statistically a time where these things can crop up. And if you ever feel that you need to speak to someone, your midwife, your doctor, the nurse in the room, those are all people who you can reach out to and speak to. Um, the Your provider is going to see if you have any social support. So all that nice conversation they're having. So do you have a husband? Do you live near family? That's they're doing an informal, informal check. Do you have support to get through this pregnancy? Because if you have a lot of stress and no support, the chances of you carrying to term in a healthy way is so much less. So they're doing a informal check so that they can then make sure that you are happy and safe. They're going to talk to you about caffeine. Are you a coffee drinker? How much caffeine? Um, there isn't really a huge amount of data that associates caffeine with any low birth weight issues or any negative pregnancy outcomes. So ladies, enjoy your coffee. Um, another question that comes up a whole lot is, I'm just pregnant. I'm so nervous about being with my husband. Is it going to hurt the baby? There was a little bit of spotting. I missed the, a little bit of what Mushki spoke about, but based on the comments, it seems that maybe you addressed um, implantation bleeding a little bit. So I'm not sure if you did or didn't, um, but said it happened because rub about the calendar. Okay. So you spoke a little bit about calendar. Just mentioned that it happens. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to pop in with a question. Can you please address, uh, Mushki, um, keeping the calendar during pregnancy at all? Like once you have your pregnancy test, are you, are you scot free? Are you done with the calendar? So anything that's pre-existing on your calendar for the first three months, the first 90 days of pregnancy, anything that's there, if you had like an extra long half lug or whatever it is, you still have to keep those days as they appear. When there's new spotting beginning of pregnancy for whatever reason, speak to your Rav about whether or not it qualifies to go on the calendar or not. Um, sometimes it might seem like a period, like implantation bleeding can last like four days. It could seem like a period. Only later you find out that it was actually implantation bleeding. Sometimes a Rav will say, it acts like a period on the calendar. Some will say, no, it's pregnancy related and it doesn't. So that's something to speak to our Rav anytime something new comes up. As far as unfortunately a pregnancy loss, if it's before 40 days, um, then it goes on the calendar as usual. If it's post 40 days, that's again, in general, whenever there's a pregnancy loss, you wanna be in touch with your halachic and medical team together and address that and everything that interplays with that. I'm just gonna interject for a second. What Mushki's talking about the first uh, 30 days, of uh, the first 90 days of pregnancy, the first three months or the first 40 days, that's from your mikvah. So not to be confused with your first date of pregnancy medical-wise, which is from your last menstrual period, Mushki is specifically halachically telling you that it refers to 40 days from mikvah or, th or three months from mikvah, okay? So that's a very important um, thing to note. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask another question here. I guess we'll transfer who we're asking questions to. So Rifki, if you can please um, explain, is it harmful to take folic acid if the MTHR is positive? 
Um, it's not harmful, it just isn't bioavailable. That means that you won't be able to access it the way that your body needs to. It's not, it's not gonna harm you. Like if you take excessive amounts of folic acid, that might be harmful, but taking the 400 micrograms and then you're MTHFR positive and you're not processing it, it's not something to be worried about. Okay, now Mushki, do you mind just going over again, please, what the halakhic count of pregnancy is? Um, someone sent in a question that, you know, they were told that every month should be 30 days. So it would be 90 days and not even if the halakhic uh, day is haftas or lamed. So is there is there such a thing as the halakhic date of pregnancy? If you could just go over that one more time, please. Okay, so there's um, a few different things. There's a total number of days that a pregnancy lasts that's mentioned in Gemara that usually doesn't have any um, practical implications. Um, because usually if there's going to be an induction happening before that date, there's usually a strong medical reason. And if you just have a doctor who's like, you know, going to be going away on vacation and wants to induce you at 39 weeks for what, for no reason, then that's something that maybe you could discuss and you could say, Oh, you know, we have our religious, um, backing that, you know, it's not the time yet. It's not full gest gestation. And I want to wait. Um, but otherwise it usually doesn't come up practically. Um, when we talk about months, it doesn't say days. It says after three months, you can tell family and friends, that's three months. So if mikvah was Rosh Chodesh, then it's after Rosh Chodesh. You don't have to make yourself crazy and count which day you're allowed to tell or not. Um, in general, it's not a halacha. It's something, and I don't know if I mentioned before, you're allowed to tell your parents earlier. I mean, that says straight out. And then, of course, as Rifki said, if you need support, don't be afraid to say it. Something else that I'm not sure I mentioned previously when I said our minog is not to go into basic forest. If there's a levaya of somebody close to the person, definitely speak to a rav about being able to go and how to be able to go because the minhag of not going versus, again, we weigh maternal mental health a lot. If it's going to cause a lot of pain to the pregnant woman not to be able to um, have that closure of going to levaya in some form, it's something she should speak to a rav about and find out her own guidelines. Okay, thank you, Mushni. And then Rifki, I know you had a couple of, um, more questions that you wanted to address that you see on the chat. So go ahead and take it on. Okay, so somebody asked, what is a, what is considered a cervical check? A cervical check is when your provider says, okay, lay on the table, put your legs in the stirrups, which are those things that pop out at the end of the table. And um, they check you vaginally. Okay, that's called a cervical check. They're checking inside your vagina, putting in um, a speculum, expanding the speculum, and then being able to see your cervix. The cervix gives us very limited information, and that's why I'm telling you that it's not an accurate predictor of what's going to be, and therefore, you absolutely are well within the framework of safety and within your rights to advocate for yourself to not have one at every single visit, even though a lot of providers will ask you to. Another question that came up was, um, can you explain the tracking your ovulation with your finger? Okay. So your body um, lubricates, your vagina lubricates itself all the time. Okay. Sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on a lot of hormonal and external factors. Um, one of which is hydration, by the way. So keep yourself hydrated. Um, what I'm talking about is that so if you would take your finger and place it in your vagina and 
see what fluid is there when you're on the bathroom. It's usually thin, watery fluid. You go like this with your fingers, and it's just water. So nothing really sticks. There's no gloopiness. There's no mucusiness between the fingers. So what I'm saying is when you're ovulating, when your body's ovulating, Hashem does this wonderful thing that it creates this gloopy, thick um, moisture and, and mucus, really, that is going to help create an environment where the sperm is going to actually be able to fertilize an egg. So what you're going to be feeling is thick loopiness. So if you would put your fingers in your vagina um, during the time that you are ovulating and then you went like this, then there would be some sort of stretchy, mucusy, elasticy fluid there. Um, Kasi, do you see any other questions there? Yeah, there was a question there on if you had preeclampsia um, in your 20s, mm -hmm. is what happened again in your 30s, um, or if there's anything you could do to prevent that, if you know that, or is that a provider individual situation? Um, they would look at individual issues with you. I don't know that person's medical history, so it would be very flippant and not productive to say. Um, but there's definitely a higher risk of preeclampsia if you've had preeclampsia. Now, it's um, we're not there yet, but now that preeclampsia is brought up, just in case we forget to say it, that preeclampsia can actually happen after pregnancy as well. So you really have to keep monitoring um, your blood pressure. And if you notice yourself that there's any unexpected, like big jump in weight, like you gain five pounds in a day, or you feel extremely swollen or have a very strong headache or anything that really seems very out of the ordinary, preeclampsia is absolutely something that you should be taking very, very seriously. Okay. Thank you so much, Rifki. Um, and um, Mushki, did you want to add anything else? To yeah, I just um, wanted to say, like I always end my classes, thank you everyone. I usually say for coming out, but for taking the time in your own home, it's very busy. There's a lot going on. Everyone has a million Zooms. Thank you for choosing to Zoom with us today or not Zoom, whatever this platform is called. Um, so for taking the, we started off with the Rebbe talking about Peru Revu, how every child born into the world is a whole world. And that is really something that is so unique and special. And it's something that we should focus on and appreciate. And it's not just, you know, people use the term baby machines. We're not just baby machines. We don't just like, you know, get pregnant, have a baby, all kinds of things happen to our body and to our mental health. And, you know, and it just, we just ignore it and just live with it because that's life. No, this is something we take seriously. It's a schuss that we have. And I want to bench everyone that it should come in an easy and smooth way. And we should take care of ourselves and feel empowered through this process and to, and seek the support that we need from our medical provider, from our Rav, um, from our spouse and from the, it takes a village in all aspects and we should all have that and create that for ourselves if we don't have that so that we can go on to be healthy, happy women and raise beautiful families of bring Chassidah Shanachas and bring Mashiach. Thank you so much, Mary and Rifki. Um, next class is going to be a continuation because we want to make sure that we're ending um, in our one and a half hour time slot. So we're up to the end of pregnancy and we're going to continue on. We'll, the class will continue whatever last pieces we need to deal with with the end of pregnancy, continuing into childbirth and the postpartum period, halakhically, ashkafically, medically, and practically. Um, and uh, Rifki, did you want to share a clip now? Um, 
I'm going to share, we're not really at the end of pregnancy from a medical standpoint and neither from Mushki standpoint, to be honest. Okay, so we still have more to cover so there. We have a lot more to cover and in Mirkashem we will cover it next class um, because there's a lot of other things that Mushki and I both prepared. Um, there is a short clip that we, uh, you know, I'm going to let the Rebbe talk for us as we finish off and wishing everyone a happy and healthy journey through whatever point of um, preconception, conception, pregnancy, etc. they are in. Um, and I'm going to share the screen right now. Okay, great. I'm just going to comment and say that I'm going to end it as soon as the Rebus clip is over. So I'm going to remove us all from the screen now. Okay. Uh, let's add. And go ahead. Mute yourself, please. Bodenunterfangelungsfuhrade <laughs> Und danach kommt das Ares begolle der Spur. Gleich wenn der Kinder Jesu le Avil Hoelom, wo der Pfarrer der Kirche der Mina Gisrol Telehu, am Fleckt aufhängen verschiedene Schemis oder Schirham Meilis, wie kann Jesu basse, gleich wie der Kind wird geboren. Allah has come and come over the stood in the mother and in the father. 